today here here in the middle of the summer we have a little two-part series uh, beginning today uh, on tragedy and pain and how to move past that and they can really be standalone sermons in the sense that today uh, we're talking about how God helps us move past tragedy and pain in other words what he does and next Lord's Day we'll talk about some things we can do uh, to help us move past tragedy and pain. But for today, we look at Revelation 21, the first four verses. I hope you'll follow along in your Bible or your bulletin insert. And this is where John tells us, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He shall wipe away every tear. From your eyes, who, who wipes away tears in your house? You know, usually it's been my experience that mothers are pretty good at that. I know that my mom was when I was a small child. She was always able to handle my tears. I tell people all the time, I don't know what to do with a crying woman. But most women know what to do with crying children. And uh, Sarah was certainly that way for our children when they were young. The problem is that, you know, you and I move past age three or age five or age eight. And all of a sudden there's mourning and and crying and pain that uh, mom's words and hugs cannot take away like when we're sitting at the graveside or when we hear the word cancer or open heart surgery from the doctor's mouth or when our community comes under attack by evil now I realize that the original readers of these words found themselves part of an empire that did not really care for people of a monotheistic faith. In fact, the Roman Empire took more than just a a don't-care attitude toward Christians. They were downright hostile. And many were persecuted, and many more were martyred. There was this kind of alienation from the main culture of which they were a part. And I don't propose today that our grief or persecution as Christians in the 21st century is anything like that of the Christians around the turn of the first century in the Middle East. Our losses 
are just as real. Uh, but I would argue not the duration. However, I believe that we could say that we have some things in common with those first century believers, one of which is that we too, to some extent, as Christian people, are alienated from the majority culture in which we live in lots of different ways. But I think also with tragedy and pain. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we know that Jesus teaches in the Beatitudes in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be what? Comforted. That's what the Scriptures teach. But what does the world say out there? What does our American society say? As one writer put it, our world says, blessed are those who smile. Blessed are those who, if by chance their lives fall short just the teensiest little bit, nevertheless smile pretending that everything is okay. Our world says, blessed are those who cry alone and before going out in public wash their faces and replenish their makeup. Blessed are those who, when asked how they are, smile and say, fine, thank you giving proof to the lie that they're in the process of living happily ever after. You know, Jesus said in the world, you have tribulation. And in John 16, where we find that statement, we can also find words like sorrow, lament, weep. This world is not an easy place. It's indeed filled with sorrow, pain, and tragedy. Jesus himself tells us, you're going to have tribulation in this world, so get ready for it. But even though that's true, we're part in this world of a battle in a war that has already been won. That's why Jesus said to his disciples right before his crucifixion that in the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Why? Because he said, I have overcome the world. Yes, there's going to be loss and grief, but there's no defeatist attitude around here in the body of Christ. And to my way of thinking, part of what John is doing here in our text is giving us a glimpse of what it really means that the war is won. And to what we can look forward as followers of the Lord Jesus. Note the many contrasts he gives us. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And no more sea, we can most likely interpret that word sea there as evil. There's no more evil. In addition to this new heaven and new earth, there is a new Jerusalem. And notice how much preparation that new city has received. It's like a bride made beautiful for her husband. Do you know what time brides get, get to the church around here in a big wedding? 
I mean, if the wedding's at 6 in the evening, they're here at 8 or 9 that morning. I mean, so every detail can be taken care of. And then the voice tells us that now the dwelling of God is with His people. That they can not only see God and live, but indeed are able to live precisely because of His presence. There's no more separation due to sin. No more separation due to different realms or worlds or ages. Just life in God's presence forevermore. And then that wonderful promise that death shall be no more. The great enemy. We need to see here that this is not some kind of automatic effect. But that it is God himself. As the God of all comfort. Who wipes away all of the tears. Who gives life which death cannot touch. And who makes possible so much joy that sadness can no longer coexist. And while there are so many things we could talk about here, I simply want us to pause long enough to discover the love, the care, and concern that God displays toward His own. The fact that He is present and near all of the time. The fact that he is so gentle, just like a mother, in wiping away tears and pouring out his love to the extent that his presence and his power overwhelm any negative thought or feeling that might try to persist. That's what he does for us in the midst of our anguish and pain. That's why we grieve, but we grieve not as those who have no hope. There's a movie that was put out about 25 years ago by the name of Spitfire Grill. And the basic plot involves a young lady named Percy just out of prison, who comes to a little one-horse town in the northeast called Gilead and begins to work at this grill for the older owner, a lady by the name of Hannah. Now, there's a lot going on in this movie, and I can't cover it all here, but suffice it to say that Percy, the young lady, represents good. She's a good-hearted person who has lived a hard life because of abuse in her earlier days. And while at the grill, she establishes a good relationship with the owner, Hannah. And this owner gives her some strange chores to do from time to time. Like every night before they close up, she takes a sack of canned goods outside and puts them behind the grill. And Percy begins to wonder, what's happening, you know, to these canned goods? And so she decides to sleep outside one night just to see if she can tell where they go. 
Well, as viewers, we come to find out that those canned goods are for Hannah's son, Eli, whose brain was so scrambled during his service in the Vietnam War that he can no longer be around people on an ongoing basis. Well, Percy sleeps outside. She sees Eli and calls to him, but he runs off into the woods. She follows, calling to him, but gets no reply. And even though she's never seen more than a glimpse of him, Percy begins to walk in the woods and talk to Eli just like he's right there beside of her. She carries on a conversation. She even gives him a name. Now, as viewers, we can see him. But Percy never can because he's always moving from tree to tree and bush to bush. He's always ahead of her. But he leads her deeper and deeper into the woods and and begins to show her beautiful places like a waterfall or even his own makeshift cabin where she finds these beautiful sculptures. One day, though unseen, Eli leads Percy to this beautiful meadow. And as she's sitting there in the grass, she begins to sing the words of the old spiritual. There's a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. She knows he's close, and she does nothing to scare him away. In fact, he becomes so close that he can put his hand on her shoulder. She never turns around to look at him. Now, why tell you all of this? Because with her patience and selfless love with her willingness to spend time and effort to make a difference in someone else's life, with her ultimate willingness to lay down her life for the powerless, Percy can be seen as a type of God. She understands suffering. She knows what it means to be cut off from the land of the living because of the abuse in her younger life. And whoever wrote that screenplay knew what they were doing from a scriptural point of view as well because that famous phrase about a bomb in Gilead is found in the 8th chapter of the prophet Jeremiah. And that's a very moving passage if you haven't read that lately. For Jeremiah identifies completely with the sorrows of his people. His heart is broken. He's in the midst of pain and agony that some of us would find hard to imagine. It's where he matter-of-factly states that the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Can you hear the dismay in his voice? Then we have the rhetorical question. Is there no bomb in Gilead? In other words, is there there no physician? No healer? 
no medicine that can cure our hearts. Jeremiah is at the end of his rope. From time to time, you and I might be as well. But God gives us good news in this text. For John tells us God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Not just some of the tears. Every single tear. Paul also points us to the same good news in a verse that has been called the closest parallel in literature to this first verse in our text where he tells the Christians at Corinth in his second letter, the fifth chapter, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For Paul, the new creation came into being in the death of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where we find the balm for the sick heart. That's where we find the physician to heal the sin-sick soul and the God who will dwell with His people and will tenderly and patiently name them and care for them and love them with His everlasting love. Even laying down the life of His own Son on the cross. I read this passage in Revelation 21 at many gravesides. I heard it read just this week at a graveside. I read it in order to talk about the eternal perspective that God gives unto us through His Word. That we're only in this world a short time. And this will all pass away. Because as John tells us here, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And we need to live with that eternal perspective every day. The same kind of eternal perspective that Jesus gives us when he says, peace, I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Not as the world gives. You see, the former things are passing away in the grace of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of the gospel. Believe it. And live in its peace. Amen. Let's pray together.